and Groove Lounge. Welcome to the Needle and Groove Lounge, an unscripted podcast establishment serving sips and spins since 2020. Have you ever listened to an album that you were certain the whole world would be into, only to find out that a quote-unquote music critic dismissed and even more devastatingly, they tore the album apart and gave it a bad review. If so, you're gonna love our first round. In this round, we talk generally about music criticism and unpack how it's even possible to rate music in the first place. But more specifically, we take on the music publication Pitchfork. The fellas dive more into the history of Pitchfork and their reviews and criticism in this episode. And then they choose a favorite album of theirs that was poorly reviewed by Pitchfork and defend that album. It gets pretty intense. Next, in our genre round, Jeff asks the fellas to partake in a record label battle. He pairs Impulse Records and Blue Note Records, two influential jazz labels, and asks the boys to choose which label they prefer. Both labels are still putting out great music, so take some time to dig into their new and classic albums. Keep listening to see which label took the win. Thanks again for listening, and be sure to give us a good review on your podcast platform of choice. You can also help out the lounge by sharing the pod or Instagram page with another music lover in your life. You can hit us up on the Instagram page at Needle Groove Lounge if you want to come on the show or if you have a theme or genre you'd like us to explore. Well, thanks again. Enjoy the show. And let's start with the fellas a drink tonight at the lounge. That's the doors opening. <laughs> Last we're, time we're, I'm... Do, are we on Star Trek? Do we, are we in space? <laughs> Last time I talked about me saying, all right. So I, w- I wanted something new. That's the... The wind's blowing in. We, we got some like aftermarket doors from a Walmart because they were right. cheap. They go like... <laughs> we had to open the windows, folks, because uh, last week was the open bar and we had some characters in here. So we are <laughs> cleaning out the open bar that got rowdy. Um, it's a little quieter, a little more tame tonight. You know, have uh, people storming through. DJ Tone got kicked out, snuck through the back window. He came in through the back room, bathroom window, Beatles reference. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, we're not sure if that's going to see the light of day, folks. We're working on it. We're working on it. We're working on it. It's going to come out in some form, in some shape. But thank you all for coming to the open bar. It's Thanks. under litigation. Somebody that was kicked out may or may not be filing a lawsuit. Exactly. But we're working on it. We're working on it. So we are back to our traditional format this week. Got our three rounds, two that'll be tonight, and then one in the later episode. But um, cool. You guys want to dive into the beers? What are you sipping on on this beautiful thursday night in april rob why don't you start cool i got a brand new beer from uh notch of course oh i like the uh, label. it's called yeah. uh named gates of the west named after mm. the clash b-side uh cool. from the i fought the law uh law is the one. a side yeah okay uh i forget the name of the ep escapes at the moment but this is a an exact replication of the 45 <laughs> Yeah, I love that little insert thing. That's awesome. Oh yeah, that's like one of our one of our like lockup things. We use that a lot on a lot of stuff. So um, it's got some like unique notch stuff, but it's a British bitter. 
who's naming the notch stuff? I feel like you got a you got a music nerd that could come on the lounge. Yeah, there's a, a lot of music. Of well, stuff. yeah, I, a lot of our beers, if they're not like um, names, like replicas of like German or Czech names, they're named after songs or music references. Okay. Like a lot of the inspiration for the artwork uh, and like you know brand profile is like hat show posters, you know, from Nashville. Yeah. Those like very famous posters. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a pretty heavy music influence on everybody that works there. Um, so if it's, awesome. that's, we take a big influence from a lot of that, like late eighties, early nineties, yeah. like post-punk stuff. Like we have, you know, replacement songs, dinosaur junior songs, yada, yada, who's your do and the like. Our beer could be your life. Um, if it wasn't taken, we would have used it. Someone already used that ready. Okay. This beer could be your life. I believe is taken. Uh, okay. Um, J-Bug Photography, shout out to you. I saw you went to Funk. You were at Funk Brewing. Yeah. Making big inroads at Funk. Did they give you beer? You've been trying for beer. Did they, how, did they, how did they compensate you? Yeah, I, I, I walked away with a freshly canned four-pack. Okay, beautiful. Yeah. I was That's 20 bucks to, right there. There you go. going to try to take some uh, creative photos of it. But yeah, it was fun. It was awesome okay. that they had me in. I was like just sneaking around while they were doing their canning process and then taking a few yeah. product photos. So no, it was fun. It was cool. Yeah. Are you not drinking awesome. a funk then? Are you drinking a funk or no? No, I'm not. <laughs> those are for product shots. Man. He drank them already. Exactly. He drank them already. Those, those are for product shots. So you can't be wasting those on the podcast. I'll drink it after I after I take a photo of it. There you go. Not you not for nothing, Jesse. But you know, Notch does ship to Pennsylvania now. I haven't seen an order come in from either of you guys <laughs> for for some product shots. I'm just saying. Nor have I right. received a request. I mean, send me some and I'll take some photos. <laughs> there you go yeah some free stuff Um, what are you drinking bones what you got um i'm actually drinking one that my brother-in-law gave me as an easter in my easter basket um nice it's from winding path brewing they're from dallas town pa which is out like towards like lancaster and york wow out that way this is called their spring fog ipa it's got a nice little tent logo on the side you should re you should recreate that for the picture, like you laying in a tent, <laughs> right. or me laying in a tra- tent. You take a picture of me shirtless, with fog coming out of the tent. Right, exactly, <laughs> like a fog machine. We just get a fog yeah. Uh, J Mac, go ahead. Just I have um, Lawson's finest liquids. I I love their sip of sunshine, but they just put out the little sip. So. Um, uh. Oh, little sips. Oh, I've seen that around. That's good. I've never had that. Okay. I guess it maybe didn't just come out, but I'm I'm just now seeing it. So it's it's just now out for like wider distribution. I I just saw it recently. Okay. Yeah, I got to pick it up. Little sips. You can thank the pandemic for that, guys. Thanks. They were only thanks COVID nineteen. Well, they were only available in Vermont until the pandemic, and Ah. uh, you know they had to find other ways to ship and sell beer. So. That's why you, that's why you got your old yield lessons. I'm gonna kind of go on theme, not to tonight's themes, but just where we are now at the pod. Um, I got a beer from Three Threes called Back to Reality. So last week we were not in reality at the open bar. We are now back to reality. It has an awesome <laughs> um, Back to the Future logo on it. It's from Three Threes. They're from uh, Hamilton, New Jersey. So I thought it was a cool label, so I wanted to give it a try. Um, How, how's that? Yeah. Is it just literally three threes? Uh, yeah, that's what it says. Um, three written out, T H R E E, and then the number three, three threes brewing. Okay. 
So um, that's confusing. I thought you said threes and like just yes. stuttered momentarily. And I, I actually like, think okay. I, I think I <laughs> bought it thinking it was the threes brewing that we've referenced before, but then on a closer look, one is from New Jersey and two it's three threes. So that's um, interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, it's good. It's an IPA. So I'm sipping on that. Um, all right, fellas, let's dive in. We got our two themes. The first one we're kicking off with our democratically elected theme. And then we're going to go into our genre special. So uh, the opening theme this week, really, if we zoom out, I think it's about music criticism, right? We're going to take some jabs at Pitchfork. And for those of you, I'm sure if you're listening, you know Pitchfork. Um, started in the late 90s, early 2000s. I think I'm not wrong in saying it started as like an uber hipster um, kind of poo-poo look at us we're gonna like things that are different and weird um I don't know. i'm sorry i think that's the truth and i think they describe it as that even like they were like the scenesters at the time they've evolved somewhat they've been signed or they've aligned with condi nast which is kind of interesting mm-hmm. um and they've widened their their scope slightly i think at one point gotta really pay were, the bills baby right I, right but anyways i think first we're zooming out i think we're, what we're talking about is music criticism because pitchfork started as a lot of reviews it's music news but it's criticism and they have a rating scale of zero to ten um and they rate them um 7.1 8.3 and i'd say typically 8.3 gets their best new music and above um i'd love to see some data like what on average they give albums um mm. But I'd say when I've seen an 8.3 typically gets you a best new music, but they go zero to 10. And so I think we're talking tonight about who gets to decide quality when it comes to music, right? Um, who gets to determine what's good and what's not. If you like something, is it a 10 for you? And who the fuck cares what anybody else says, right? Um, but then why have music criticism? I think there has to be something to that. So I'd love to explore that with you guys tonight around what we think about music criticism and uh, how things are rated and why. Um, but anyways, the theme is really tonight for us to find an album that to us maybe is an eight, nine or 10 on our personal scale. And then that pitchfork gave it something much lower than that. And we're going to have a verbal battle with the writer or reviewer of that pitchfork article. So talking about music criticism, talking about quality, but taking a jab at pitchfork uh, in their ratings or review of a song. Anyone have anything to add to that? I think as you're thinking about criticism, I missed anything about pitchfork that we should highlight. I think that was perfect. I think that was pretty perfect. Um, yet, I mean, in, in terms of summing up pitchfork for sure. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I think some, yeah. Go ahead, Justin. I was gonna say, I think regardless of like how you feel about the publication, it's undeniable like how much impact they've had yes. on the music industry and how like even if you if someone disagrees, like it, people still go to it as like one of the sources for new music. Um, or honestly, I use it a lot to look at like new um, um, uh, re-releases when they do the old stuff because yeah. I, I actually like some of their reviews on how they do some of the re-releases. But And their music news is great. I think yeah. they are. like I see a lot of stuff that they put out first before any other publications, so you can't knock them for that. Um, but they definitely got a, early on, they were trying hard to be that, to establish mm-hmm. themselves as this like, this this uber hipster scene yeah like very snark heavy right we know more than you like your classic version of a hipster and now they're more of like to their credit have transitioned into more of like a music aggregator 
yes. news site. I mean, they have their own festival in Chicago, which is right. a, a very well-programmed festival with great artists that yeah. some have been rated very, very poorly in Pitchfork. But and it's a cool yeah. story. I mean, again, it, yeah. I think we talk about like the blog culture that ends up coming out in the late 2000s. This very guy, much. Ryan Schreiber, I think, starts it as a publication in the 90s and then for it to grow like that is remarkable i think that's aligned to some of the stuff like cream magazine and things like that that start almost as like fanzines in a way uh we've referenced aquarium drunkard on here that started the same way in 2006 was just engaged just being like my friends are around the country and i want to share the music i'm into and then he realized a lot of other people started following it so it's a cool story of how music publication comes out anyways it's also interesting, like, um, when you think about the influence that Pitchfork has, yet, like, for the band that I, I chose, like, every album was reviewed by somebody different. It's not like ah. New York Times or, like, Rolling Stone, where they have, like, well-known, like, columnists who, like, yeah. write the reviews. Like, these are all just, like, for lack of a better term, like, no-name people, like, writing these reviews and think of, like, how much influence that may have on, like, yeah. the band success by some like random writer that Pitchfork has doing the uh, album review. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, they have a lot of staff writers. I think we've referenced Amanda Petruskis was on, she wrote for them at one point. Um, And I think she got bigger because of it, but I agree with you. There's a lot of people that were, again, just like music nerds that were writing for this thing that is, you know, can make or break an artist, right? Like I think there's a lot of talk about the Pitchfork bump. If you get a high seven, eight, nine, right? Like that could really set your, set your career, so. Well, with that being said, let's go to town on them. Uh, let's talk about how much Welcome. we think that their review sucked of something that we thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, so uh, welcome to Ground Lounge Fork. Uh, lounge Fork. The Needle empty lounge. shout out. <laughs> yeah. Um, who wants to dive in? Uh, talk about how you approached it, put the parameters uh, in place. Um, someone kick it off for us. Let's do it. I'll dive in. Bonius. Um Love it. So... Uh, my parameters were kind of easy because I already knew Pitchfork bashed this artist repeatedly. Um, but I still went through a little research and like just picked some, was going through like my iTunes library and picking out some of my favorite artists and like, let me see what they reviewed. Let me see what they reviewed. And I'm going through, but there was one artist in particular that um, I found that Pitchfork basically across the board just bashed all of their albums. Oh, man. Um, and it's an album that's near and dear, or I mean, an artist that's near and dear to my heart, and I love them, uh, which is Dr. Dog. Uh, I almost oh, did yeah. that. I have a feeling you might, so I, I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I didn't. So, yeah, Jeff Jeff featured Dr. Dog, as you remember, uh, episode two ago when we did the outdoors yep. music. Um, so I was going through and looking at the album reviews that they did. Um, so for that album that the song today is on that you play Jeff uh, easy bait. They gave that a 4.4. And then from there they did, we all belong at five, five fate at five, five shame. Shame was the highest of all their albums at six, seven. I remember that, but then be the void after that five, seven. And then B room was five, four shameful. Right. And they, they just kept bashing them as being like Beatlesque and stuck in their ways. No ambition, no urgency. And it's like, going to what you said before that of them being these like uppity up their own ass, like, um, kind of reviewers, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's like, Oh, you, you can't go back to that sound and, and try to do your own thing. Like they, they were all about that early two thousands, like, um, indie 
resurgence kind of like rock. Yep. So I think they just had no room in their repertoire for anything that was nostalgic sounding. They wanted that new sound like TV on the radio and like, you know, uh, Grizzly Bear or whatever, like other yeah. stuff coming out around that time. They didn't have time for this like feel good, like yeah. nostalgic rock. Um, yeah, and- no, it's funny you say that because I think, right, that's a perfect... I think like Animal Collective came out at that time. And so it's yes. like freak folk and all this weird stuff. So if you were just doing regular kind of jangly folk rock or roots indie rock, it was like, who are you, right? Like this is too basic. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. had to be like, I think at that time, especially for, you had to be weird, almost like right. for the sake of being weird. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or exactly. you had to be like, I don't know. I'll get into it in my review. But yeah. yeah. Awesome. You get Morrissey shits out every fucking record, and that's an eight or nine best new music. <laughs> Did, is there any lines from the review that particularly pissed you off? I was looking through, and and some of the ones were just like the the no ambition and oh, no okay. urgency. But I mean, I think that's the beauty of Doctor Dog's music too. Is like that lack of urgency. It's like the relatable to having a backyard barbecue, going hanging out with your friends having a beer, having a good time. That's what their shows are like too. Like yeah. they're not meant to be very progressive and like, you know, trying to like up the bar of, I don't know, um, what's out They're They're trying to create these feel good vibes that you would want to have on at a barbecue and stuff. So, I mean, that's their shtick. Yeah. So to like criticize them for that, I don't know. And they kept saying how like, how they kept, um, paralleling them to like different Beatles tracks, even yep, in the yep. reviews. It's like, all right, that. like, yeah. I don't know. Um, I think yeah, that's kind of the allure of it. Well, cue us up a, yeah. a J Bones 10 then. Give us a J Bones 10. So I picked um, one of my favorite songs from We All Belong album um, called Alaska. And oh, it kind of embodies some of this. Like there's this line in there about the dog barking out back. He thinks he's in the band. So good. So good. I don't know. I, I guess I'm also a little biased too, like because this is um, this came out around uh, time when we were in college, when we were like outside, just riding our bikes through the city, having um, you know like outdoor picnics on like Kelly Drive by Boathouse Road, just enjoying the sunshine. And, and they're like a Philly band too. So yeah, yeah, they're a Philly band too. So obviously biased that way, but. Um, regardless. Not biased. They're a 10. Um, They're a 10. <laughs> so here's um, the song Alaska by Dr. Dog. Dr. Dog, Alaska from We All Belong, 2007, I believe. Was that album? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, as I was listening to it, one line that did, one more thing I just want to say. Um, you were saying about like any lines in the reviews that really like kind of uh, ticked me off or whatever. They they mentioned the guitar playing as sloppy in there. But I think, I don't know, like it's a little dirty, but yeah. it's like, it's definitely clean um i don't know i, no, I feel like the solos that just strikes me as the like, point though yeah like yeah. i think a lot of 
Sorry to cut you off, but I think after no, no, reading no. a lot of bad Pitchfork reviews, I think a lot of these reviewers are reviewing music that they either don't understand or have a slight disdain for in the first place. Mm. So they're like mm. missing the point. Right. 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 And that's one thing, Rob, I think I've noticed over the years. I've started to notice, I think, to just to, to go against what Jesse said earlier, which was like, I think, again, they had staff writers that in the early 2000s that were just like, here, you review this. They and just you had to like this. pump shit out. Right. Yeah. And now I've noticed there's certain, like when a hip hop album's coming out, it's probably three or four of these guys. Uh, there's a guy, I think it's Ian Cohen. If there's going to be like an emo yeah. thing, it's going to be Ian Cohen that's doing it. And he listens to that. So he's giving it a seven or like, an eight. Yeah, why do I want to hear a review about Dr. Dog about a guy who doesn't, from a guy that doesn't like that style of music? A guy like, that likes like, want... like, it, like industrial goth. Yeah, like, right? or like why do I want to listen to a, like a hip hop review from a guy that like doesn't like hip hop? Like right. it has no relevance to whether or there, there should be like an editorial note. Like, yeah, like, like not my thing. Here's Timmy, my review. Timmy is into stoner metal. You're about to hear like, you know what I mean? Just like a, quote from, a quote from Jesse Buggy. Like, am I into this right now? <laughs> I can't say I can't so. say that but I Here's am. my review. Ben, here's my. <laughs> and, and also, Jesse, I think, and that's what I think was missing about, again, Rob, to your point. You can clearly hear Neil Young in those guitar solos. Neil Young's like Southern Man guitar solo, he's playing one note the whole time. And playing and it kind of bad. And like, that's like, the it's point. just distorted in and, and it is sloppy, but like that's the point. It's like this it right. has it has a feel to it. The right. Grit. Like yeah. has a grit to mm-hmm. it. Yeah, they're not they're not dream theater. Like that's not the point of the song. Dream theater. <laughs> yeah. And that is, I'd say, if I had to rank the albums, I would rank that one highest. That one for me personally. Ooh, I would, yeah, definitely top one or Fate's two. Fate's pretty great too, mm-hmm. but for me, I think We All Belong is 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 ten. Easy Beats probably not far behind, um, yeah, just from definitely. nostalgia. But yeah, totally great choice for Lounge Fork. Poor choice for Pitchfork. <laughs> and also, I bet this is going to be an album. Twenty five years from now, they'll do a. In 2007, Dr. Dog put out Fate, uh, or excuse me, We All Belong, a historic album for the Roots indie rock. You know what I mean? Like they'll do yeah. like a re, they'll do a re-review of it and give it a ten. Um, yeah. You know. But anyways, cool. All right, who wants to go next? I can go. All right. Um, I had a hard time with this, um, just because. Pitchfork likes all your albums. <laughs> your taste is so I good. Just, <laughs> I just did. No, I just didn't. Those are all good one-liners. Thank you. Um. <laughs> I just didn't want to go. To, I don't know. I had a hard time. I didn't want to go down the like looking for their bad reviews. <laughs> Ooh, I loved it so much. It was, this oh, was man. this was great. Um, so I had one that I was gonna do of a Godspeed album, but but I kind of played them last week, so I didn't want to do it. But then so or did um, you? It hasn't come out yet. Um. Oh yeah. <laughs> maybe you that's did. True. Maybe that's you true. Never did. Yeah. Um. But uh. The one I picked, I picked it because of the artist's response to the criticism. Um, I think sometimes we don't always see the artist's response to the uh-huh. criticism. And so, Jeff, you actually sent me this one. So um, when we were, were talking, but this is uh, Adrian Young's album, The American Negro. Were you doing Wait, before, it? No, no. But before you go, I don't think, I don't think he wanted anybody to see that response. Because, <laughs> so I'll, wait, I'll let you explain. I'll let you explain first. and Because and, I took a... You go first. You go first. Yeah. And then let me explain because I think we might be blowing up his spot on our on our well. I mean, to, to our twenty six followers. You you, you hear it first here at the needle. And yeah, but anyway, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Because yeah, I wasn't going to go this. into the response, but, ba- but okay. Basically, um, I did have it pulled up, but basically, you know, he kind of in some ways is like 
thanks for your opinion. Um, you kind of like, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was, he was mad. Maybe it wasn't, I don't know, but I just, I yeah. thought it was, um, in some ways actually addressing, um, the, uh, the writer. So, um, did you want to add any more to that, Jeff? No, then- I think one, I don't think we shared yet. So yeah, if you want to share who the artist is and then I, I can give, I can add, cause what, so essentially, are you yeah, said the art well adrian yeah. young is the artist in the album and then the author of was um stephen curse um is the, is the younger guy yeah author of the album um and interesting enough they label this as a pop and r&b album which that's another thing we could go into how i think sometimes their labeling of albums is misguided um, yeah but um he bashes the album in a lot of ways. And, and some of the, one of the things that I didn't love about the review is that it, it, in some ways, and this is maybe why um, there was a response to it. It seems personal. It's not about the music. Yes. It seems in some ways about the artist. And I think, I guess my opinion is on that is, and this is definitely could be debated. Like, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if there should ever be room where you talk in a way about someone, like talk about the music and your criticism of the music, but like, I think um, I'll read one, the one line that kind of like, ooh, that's, you know, it kind of stings beyond the music. Um, and as you're pulling that up, just to clarify, so Adrian Young, this is an album from this year, from 2021 yeah. that came recent out. Recent too, right? Like yeah, Recent, and, I mean, yeah. a month ago. And Adrian yeah, Young is okay. a big part of, we've referenced Jazz is Dead. So he has a big hand in the Jazz is Dead series that we played the Doug Karn and we've talked about Gary Bartz before. So he puts out this multimedia album, yeah. right? It's like podcast, yes, short film, yeah. yeah. It's great. <laughs> and he actually does like history lessons. It's pretty cool. You can watch on YouTube. He does like a series of history lessons of, of, of more of a, I wouldn't say revisionist history, but telling the history like it was, you know, yeah. kind of thing. And so I think that's part of the reason why I like the album, even it, you know, it isn't, it's one of those where we've talked about, um, do you listen to an album because it's easy to listen to, or do you listen to it like because it expands you to listen to it, but it's hard to listen to. Um, yeah. So this one for, for its composition, and topic um in a lot of ways can be but um you know the the line was i mean just the opening you know the little blurb they put at the top it's the multi-instrumentalist and composer's concept album about black existence cites everything while saying nothing um that's from the review yeah that's from the review it collapses under its own inertia that's the headline that's That's the the byline yeah (laughs) and they gave it a four and i guess my thing is it to me this is where I kind of take issue with it. Um, and I think he kind of cites in the review that um, Young is wanting the album to be somewhat of a similar to like Sly and the Family Stones. Um, um, there's a riot going on or Marvin Gaye's what, what's going on. And I think those are also albums that specific ones to, to what extent when they came out, they were realized for their greatness um, can probably be debated as well. So I think, um, yeah. I, to me, it was when someone's put, you know, and it's about basically how in a lot of ways Jim Crow um, in America ha- hasn't changed and is still very much here. Um, and so I think, I don't know, it's like, I guess I'm like, maybe that's something, maybe that's not to be reviewed. Like, if you don't like it, don't like it. But you need to write a, like a scathing review of someone's um, expression of, of, and especially to me, like of a black man expressing how he, know who knows that's that that's to be debated but it's just some of the things that i pondered with after hearing it and he actually it's it's a 
fairly controversial album. He he talks about some. I mean, the album um, cover itself. Yeah, so banned yeah, on Instagram. Yeah, it's banned. That's what I was gonna say. Instagram banned. That's actually him. So the album cover for those who haven't seen it is is a, a picture of a lynching, but it's recreated and it's him himself um, being lynched. Um, and is it true? I heard he, um, he messaged like there was um, part of that the. Um, with with lynching was like a, a postcard was on a picture was created afterwards like passed around yeah that's um, how they yeah back in the day that's that's what they would they would yeah. do is at uh, these public um extra um these you know public trials that they would do and then um then they would send them on as like postcards as like celebratory cards which is just incredibly fucked up yeah, um, beyond, yeah, beyond. But a very real part of American history and that you know that's I think that's something with this album yeah. that I enjoy is like um, we America still continues to wrestle with not fully accepting its past, um, which deals with, you know, plenty has been written about how that also reflects how we deal with America's healing of the past as well. Um, yeah. So anyways, I thought, yeah, I thought it was an interesting, I thought his, for, that was kind of the first time I've seen an artist respond directly to a writer, but then as Jeff said, it, it, it yeah. It's not on Instagram anymore. Which is, and I, and I think for the sake of his respect, we don't need to share yeah. what he said. Yeah. But he, he he responds in not, and I'll give some not, not a negative way like mm-hmm. we are right now. Yeah. Um, but I I I I think it, yeah. Um, I'll just leave it at that. So there was a response, so it, it was quickly taken down because I remember some lines in there, and I'm just going off the top of my head, but it was stuff like this album reeks of Afro sheen and mothballs. Mm-hmm. Yep, that was yeah referring to the instrument. Uh, I just have it up right now because I had to read it. Uh, that's referring to like the instrumentation. Yeah, and uh, it has it does have. I mean, it has some. I think you could call you could call it like kind of a nostalgic feel. Like there's definitely some of that. You mentioned already that like Marvin Gaye instrumentation and soulful and um, you know absolutely like the spoken word that you may hear on someone like Gil Scott Heron. Um, Right. So like, yeah, sure. Is it, is it a nod to the past? Absolutely. But I think I just said it in a way that, you know, could give it, even if you don't love it, like a nod to the past rather than reeking. It sounds like you're, you want to get you it's like part of the like, you want to get likes. And like, if I say it stinks of Afro sheen and mothballs, um, you know, it, it doesn't. Yeah. This, yeah. But. It's yeah. It's, it's, I think then, because then I think, and it was kind of getting at the conversation we were having, the Jesse that you began to brought up, bring up is that if you're looking at the album from the perspective of Adrian Young as a composer, is a very well composed composition-wise album, right. like this idea of a concept album, and then how the pieces fit together. Um, so it's like, to what extent do you review? And this gets into the larger thing we're talking about, like music criticism. Should we review something? Um, do do we try to apply to it um, our own parameter and lens? Maybe that's different one from what the artist intentionally had for it. Like to what extent it does that play into um, and should it? Um, but and like the artist to... itself, like yeah. it seems a lot of this is like it's so a lot of the review just seems like an attack on Adrian Young, like as not a per, but like like not the album. It just seems like, like he's yeah. like attacking like Adrian Young's worldview. And I wonder extent. if that connects to what I've been seeing. I, there, generations, Generation Z, Millennials, I love creating that that clash of the generations. And the the reviewer of this album is a younger black man. 
Um, and so I wonder if there's a little bit of that generational, like Adrian Young is a millennium and maybe even a generation, I don't know his exact age. He may mm. be generation X. Uh, he may be, you know, he may be part of, part of that. Um, so I wonder if there's a little bit of like the reviewer saying, this is not how I resonate or like, this doesn't speak to me in that way is the only way that I can really justify it. Cause I agree that the album to me is, I thought it was going to get best new music. Like I, I had listened to the whole thing and no, numerous times. And I remember when it came out, uh, it was the top review. So they get, they do Pitchfork does four reviews a day and they do one that they really highlight. And then three other like sub tier ones. And it was the top. No, maybe it wasn't even. And that was gave me the first note of like, okay, they're not taking this seriously. And then I saw the four and like, wow. But yeah. Yeah. That brings up another good point, which I, about pitchfork in general that I think we've kind of been banning about, but just occurred to me is like, also we're talking about like reading articles on the internet and stuff like that. So I think pitchfork made a lot of the name for themselves, whether they believed in what they were writing or not being sort of like these outlandish, like taking these like viewpoints because like on the internet, that's what gets clicks. I'm not saying that this is what this particular author did, but I think it speaks to a larger point with music criticism on the internet in general, like back then and today it's like, the more uh you know like 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 the whatever the, I've, i'm uh forgetting the analogy but like the more ridiculous things you say the more attention you're gonna get right, because like right. you've said like you know you've taken these like hard stances if he was like oh the album's pretty good really not really for me but like right. 7.0 mm-hmm. solid instrumentation like that just goes to the bottom of the pile yeah, yeah. to and what extent I'll, are you a music critic then right like it, it in yeah the, in the yeah it's like you have he, a response yeah. yeah he wants to create a response he's yeah. like a young writer he probably wants to like make sure like stuff's on the front of the pitchfork page or like mm-hmm. even like any of these negative reviews or reviews in general we've talked about with pitchfork being snarky i think they sort of like that's what got them notoriety for better or for worse that they were like yeah. the snarky thing and then you kind of have to lean into it because people are paying attention and there's nothing inherently wrong with that i oh, no, no, lester bangs who's probably the archetype for this type of of music criticism, he was extremely outlandish at some point and wrote like I, there's a great. It was in the post I pictured the psychotic, psychotic, dung, psychotic reactions and carbonator dung is a collection of his of his 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 work for Cream and it's insane. Like it's insanity the stuff he was writing. Um, so you know there's a blueprint for it, but yeah. Uh, well, Justin, why don't you show us a show us a ten then? Give us a. Give us, <laughs> Give us your uh, your hit. I'll, I'll play my track off of it. But yeah, if you, if you listen to it, it's it's inner, it's kind of spoken word in between um, some funky, groovy tracks. Um, again, all related to uh, to what extent um, we are still living in a in a Jim Crow society. Um, and the track I'm going to play is Revolutionize. You are tuned into the Black Consciousness. A light transmission with a mission. A dark image on black and white static. You are tuned into the black consciousness. Don't adjust your antenna. This is channel me. You are tuned into the black consciousness. A forecast from the past with the image verse identity drama live on something past. Adrian Young, Revolutionize. That's a good track too, because it it highlights a little bit of the spoken word at the beginning. Yeah. I'm glad you chose that. I'm not sure well I'll edit it for our listeners, but 
Yeah. So the whole album is, it's a, it's mostly a track, spoken word, track, spoken word, which mm-hmm. is awesome and really powerful. I did make, um, this would be for Jesse and Justin, if you're interested. I, again, I'm not trying to downplay the spoken word. You should listen to it. Absolutely. Listen to it a number of times. But if you just want the music, I, I, I made a playlist of just the tracks. Um, cause even the tracks alone, just like 10 tracks alone, is really great back mm-hmm. to back. If you're after you listen to mm-hmm. the spoken word, but yeah, not a four. I mean, no, I mean, that's, even if it wasn't maybe about like his 10, experience, but like not a four, no, not a, that's a, that's like, even if you're going down that and you're trying to be critical of like the nostalgic pieces and nods, like you're giving that a mid seven, right? Yeah. Like you're giving that a mid seven, if not a eight, eight, right? Right. Like for, for, for its political nature, like alone. So, this brings up an interesting thing. So like to what extent, extent this is the educator i mean like to what extent is there norming by pitchfork staff on the the scale right like because then if you take the there is none i think is the answer to that right i I can't imagine though i don't know on the on the other on the flip um we haven't played it on here i don't think or maybe it was a non-recorded one but like the the angel bat album which the live album, which is very similar in nature and the, yes. the topic and the, the sound of what is being yes. played, got like a, what, it was like a 10. It's best new music. Oh, so, Black Monument Ensemble too, which I think got an eight and they have a new one coming 8. up 4. this You're right, 8.4, sorry. But, but literally, that's literally double, yeah, <laughs> over double what that album got. You know? And like, even, like Kamasi Washington was ready to really highly too. And like, I heard a lot of like that vibe in there too. Yeah. No, I think there's some I mean, personal vendetta that we may never know about, but it does seem like it was, I, I think I'm going to stick to my like generational thing of like, this is uh this is like not. Yeah. But I, I have to believe maybe not for the lower rated ones, but I, there has to be some like sitting around the table when they, when they determine the best new music, right? Like there has to be some of that. Uh, I can't imagine there like, you know, that it's just like, all right, Jeff, you you want to call it best new music? Cool, because it's a brand, right? Like at the end of the mm-hmm. day, like what they're yeah. calling best new music is it's it's part of their brand. Yeah, um, I mean, especially nowadays, it like means a lot. Yeah, yeah. No, good choice. I think that's a, that's great. That's that's a recent one. I yeah, I have I haven't again. That's one of the lowest. I I haven't read all. I don't read all their reviews, but mm-hmm. I read reviews of albums that I like, uh, just 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 for the sake of it. And that one was one again that I was like, whoa. They go lower. <laughs> what? I said they go lower. Yeah, wicked low. Um, but anyways, yeah, cool. Um, I'll go next. So I'm going to kind of take it closer to Jesse to some degree. And when I was thinking about this, I actually went deep in the archives of Pitchfork. I did spend some time getting deep and dirty in the Pitchfork archives. And then I said, I want to pick something that I loved and almost like in defense of what I used to love and still love, but definitely loved and gave it a 10 when I was 13, 14, 15. And then I asked myself, I wonder if I had known about Pitchfork at that time, because I didn't, I didn't find out Pitchfork till I was probably in college. Um, if I was into Pitchfork, would this negative review have tainted how I liked the album because sometimes that does happen to me, to be honest, I may like read a pitchfork review before I've heard the album. And if it gets a five, six, even low seven, I'm like, Ooh, right. For whatever reason, I think that's, they've conditioned me that way and I don't love it. Um, but they've conditioned me that way. Uh, so I wonder then if this album that got a (laughs) 2.9, 
I am sharing an album. I thought you were getting close. They got a two point nine. I know. I thought maybe this could be in this could have been in Jay Bones' wheelhouse. This definitely could have been in Rob's wheelhouse, but uh, I don't think so at this point. So this is an album that gets a two point nine, and it's actually not in the traditional Pitchfork archives. If you go on their current website and you look for this, if you search for this album, you're not going to find it. I had to go deep in the web to find this baby. I was like dark webbing it for this. No, but there's a site. If you want, you can Google it. If you just Google Pitchfork's least favorite albums. Oh, yeah. It's from some rateyourmusic.com and someone went through and created everything from three and below down to zero. Um, And so this gets a (laughs) 2.9. It has links to the archive, uh, which is awesome. So without further ado... I'm going with an album that when I was 14, 15 was 100% a 10 and I loved it. I still think it's a remarkable album. Maybe not a 10 for me currently now, still really good, but definitely not a 2.9. It still might be a 2.9 for Justin, but it saves the day, stay what you are. Um, saves the oh day, stay what you are. Oh my God, they gave it a what? A 2.9? Saves the day, stay what you are. They gave it a Wait, 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 wait. It's a one. Repeat that score again, a 2.9? Yes. Save oh, who, the who's day, the reviewer? Who is the reviewer? Okay, and I'll get into it. Say his I, name. I, did, I started to try to find him because I was like, dude, this name is 20 is years ass. ago. I wonder what this asshole's doing now. He's probably like some fucking asshole selling insurance somewhere and he doesn't even like music anymore. So this is 2001 <laughs> by John Dark. So I couldn't find Fake name. Fake Dark. name. I don't think so. I, I tried to find. So, Rob, if you can find some John Dark stuff. Well, I'm, uh, going, I'm going deep this, into the dark web. Yeah. I'm logging in. So this is classic classic snarky pitchfork so let me pull up the review so we can share there's some lines in there that are classic 2001 pitchfork so now again we are right in that territory right we are right in pitchfork land they just come out a few years ago they are ready to do it and they are hating emo and pop punk that's coming out in the 2000s and so yeah you're looking here it saves the day stay what you are so Which let me go funny, first. As soon as it started selling records, change that right. tune a little bit. So save the day, stay with your gets a two point nine, and John Dark, his whole shtick for his review here is as if he wants to give away the CD and he's selling it for one cent, and so he's almost doing like back in the day, if you remember those like CD giveaways. There's a CD advance promo. He wants to sell it for one cent, um, and he has some humdingers in here, right? So. Um, let me share a few. So he says things like, so when so much pop punks relies on the same retreaded musical crutches, he makes fun of the lyrics. Uh, he talks about them, how like they, these lyrics are at the bare minimum, unintentionally hilarious, right? Like just like snarky, like this stupid idiot, Chris Conley cannot write lyrics. Um, yeah, so they, I mean, a 2.9, that might be the lowest review of anything. Talks about his equally grating, ubiquitous nasal whine of an always flat voice. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's pretty rough here. And I thought this was interesting because then I found another review at the same time. So again, we're talking about like what makes criticism. Punk Planet, uh, excuse me, Punk News, Punk Planet is a magazine, Punk News does a review of the same album in 2001. And this, uh, I don't know, it's an an anonymous, it doesn't have the name of the reviewer, just Hugh, Hugh's the reviewer here. Hugh gives this a 9 out of 10. 
Um, and actually says it's a nine and a half. It says, do yourself a favor, pick this up. So you got John Dark versus Hugh. Me, Team Hugh, baby. Um, and he talks very differently about the amazing lyrics. Um, and he talks a little bit how, like, yeah, if you're accept- expecting a punk album like the previous Saves the Day ones, you're not going to get that. This is more mature. And that's what they were going for. So Pitchfork gives it a 2.9. Punk News gives it a 9.10. Jay Glow at age 13, 14, gives it a 12 out of 10, baby. Um, so I'm going to share a track that they crap on, that Pitchfork craps on. He makes fun of the lyrics on here. Uh, it's a beautiful song called Nightingale. Uh, I think it still stands up. It's, it's, it's great. So screw you, Pitchfork. And again, I guarantee either this year, which hits the 20th, because this would be the 20th anniversary of this album, which also is crazy and makes me feel old. I literally remember getting the CD of this. We were playing wiffle ball out front, and my neighbor had a CD boombox that we'd plug into his lamppost, and I like, got the CD. We were all like, it came out. It finally came out. We put it on, and we loved it. Um, so I think that also is pretty awesome for me being 13, 14 years old. Um, actually, how old would I have been? That's 15, 16. I was born in 1985. 2001, yeah, you would have been this 16. freshman. Yeah, yeah. so it's freshman in, in high school. So we're going to play Nightingale by Saves the Day. Beautiful song off uh, Stay What You Are. Came out in 2001 on Vagrant Records. Um, let's go. Saves the Day, Nightingale, Off Stay With You Are. A great track from that album, too. I mean, Bones and Rob, you can share maybe another track you love. I wanted to particularly choose that because it's one of my favorites. And uh, John Dark, whoever you are, knock some of the lyrics in there. And oh, I didn't so many good choose, ones. Yeah, and I didn't want to choose. He, he does reference some that he says, again, it's a 2.9, so it isn't like many tracks. But he says, you know, uh, he references some that he doesn't hate, like um, Certain Tragedy, and this is not an exit, which are great tracks. Good songs. I mean, um, Firefly yeah. is really good. Jukebox Breakdown might be oh, my favorite one. Oh, yeah. I lo- yeah. Oh, so, and I, yeah, I could have chosen all of them, but that was absolutely on all the time on the car rides uh, to high to, to school. Oh, yeah. Friends, I remember listening outside. We worked at a gas station for listeners, me and Rob. And like, I remember, you know, with girlfriends hanging out outside, like pumping that in the car while we waited in the parking lot. Uh, yeah, classic, like classic suburban emo, absolutely. But I think still holds up. Oh yeah, and largely like like a like a seminal record for Saves the Day, oh, kind yeah. of like like a genre defining record for that time of emo. Even you hear the last, I mean, last thirty seconds of that song is like an outro of kind of ambient sounds yeah like a a typical pop punk band at that time wasn't playing around with some of that stuff now it may be minute and small but like it 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 kind of it highlights where they go next within reverie and i know rob you and i disagree with that album i think it also i've come around to that album i i used to shit on it a lot more it's uh yeah i did i did (laughs) you did did. and we got an argument we got many arguments (laughs) 
pre-lounge age back when we were younger um but yeah no it's great uh, and a 2.9 just doesn't do it justice i guarantee we'll see a 20th anniversary where pitchfork will s- oh, come like, crawling because that's, that's probably why they don't have it on there right exactly mm-hmm. and that's another reason like you could not find, i bet they took it off because they know that like in in defense of the genre of emo as that you soon can't as, talk as about, soon as emo became cool like five yeah. years ago they were like delete 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 delete, delete like a politician like matt gates on twitter just like fuck 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 but bones i need that that's the only uh you held up for our listeners j bone held up the stay what you are i've got i've got them all i have can't slow down i have through being cool i've got in reverie all on wax it's the only one that i'm holding out on man come on the only one i can't find you don't have any in the later catalogs what? I'm just kidding. No one. Oh yeah, about actually, this. sorry. Serves the day. I to me, you ended that in Reverie. I love ups you guys. and downs is good too, though. <laughs> oh yeah, I don't think that ever came out on vinyl though. The ups uh, and downs. I think ups and downs. Uh, with Jesse and my Whetstones on. Yeah, there. it's all like the famous. Yeah, B-sides. sorry, that was like a subliminal kind of like to me. They ended after in Reverie, but so uh, under the boards and stuff is like good, but like maybe I'll give it a listen. Hey, eh, don't even. Yeah. Okay, it's, sorry, it's sorry, a, Chris Conley. It's for someone who loves Saves the Day. It's like a it's a poor consolation prize. It's a no sip for me. I'm sorry. That's fine. <laughs> oh, that's sorry. Different different realm. He is John Dark. <laughs> He's John Dark. John Dark. God damn it. Uh, it's, dude, not a two, it's not a 2.9. It's not a 2.9. I agree with that. But yeah. Now again, if I, I'm not uh, listening to it though, <laughs> for our listeners out there, we're gonna try to convince J Max someday that there's some good emo out there. I wouldn't share that song to you if no, I no, that wouldn't have emo. been. Yeah. Well, you I, I mean that, that's. Yeah, go ahead, Jesse. For when it came out, like, there was so much like that coming out in that, like, early 2000s. Like, if that came out yesterday and they gave it a 2.9, I'd be like, all right, like... I think it's still... I disagree. I I think think it holds up even more. I do disagree with you there. I think they'd give it higher because it came out... Like, I think they gave it back then because we... To your point with Dr. Dog, that that was too too whiny and, like, soft and, like, no... Mm -hmm. Right, like I think now they would have, and now it probably would have got like a seven or something because that sound oh, is yeah. back. I th- I think I think this record comes out today and it's a totally different story. Yeah, because of the context, because yeah. because they created that context. If it wasn't for them, that context oh, would, like their yeah. Pitchfork gives all these albums now at least seven and eight. Um, all the new revival emo stuff they're giving. Yeah, big numbers too. To to um to to emo's credit. Um, <laughs> I, I did text after playing that cloud nothing. So you, you can definitely tell lineage from that what y'all yeah. just played to yeah. like some of the vibes off the new yes. uh, or all cloud nothing's album for, to, for, yes. for point. Yeah, it has some of that. Little little yeah, yep, yep. Um Dad Rock. Right. <laughs> Rob, go ahead. Close us out. Uh you've been geared up. We folks we were supposed to do this episode a couple months ago and Rob was geared up in the chat. This for one this. Uh, we fills postponed me with it. a white hot rage. Uh, <laughs> okay. if I kill over, just wave at the screen. If I go he's on, turned he's turned his hat around. If you yeah. can, we, the, could, uh, we could literally talk about this it. review for the next this could be the podcast, in my opinion. Okay. Um so I'm gonna come out with it. Pitchfork gives the get up kids something to write home about. Oh yeah, I saw a two point zero yeah less than saves a day yeah like one of the most iconic emo first like third wave emo albums of all time a 2.0 yeah this is a good uh and i'm just where do i start so many things to start with (laughs) who's a reviewer Uh, let's start with the uh, reviewer brent di crescenzo oh his name comes up a lot first of all fuck this guy (laughs) fuck this guy (laughs) you heard me brent i said it i don't think you're a good reviewer does he still exist he, in the reviewing world? I think he, he does. does. He does. He gave two, all right, let's let's go. Um, do I want to go? I got receipts for all this. So all right, sorry, I'm gives, interrupting. No, no, he gives oh, tools. I'm just gonna give some of his other reviews, like tools, lateralis, 
arguably like one of the I don't not a huge tool fan, but like respected and well regarded in the entire music community, gives it a one. <laughs> what Brent? Well, so, got your name on my nose. So I think this is a good one to end on too, because it touches on all of the points we've discussed that is like wrong with pitchfork reviews. Pitchfork. Pitchfork. Pitch yeah. pitch pitch you fucking pitch ham. Pitchfork. <laughs> fucking eat you. Fucking eat you, pitchfork pitch reviews. So I'm gonna eat you. Rob is so mad. He's so- uh, so I'm so so. I love, we should start our own website called Pitch Pork, and we review yeah. the songs that we like. Pitch Pork reviews is what they should call it. That would have been a better one. Sounds like a um, porn site. <laughs> so I'm just gonna for context. Stereo Gum two years ago uh, did a Get Up Kids something in our home turns twenty and talks about how, how influential it was. Uh, Consequence of Sound does a Get Up Kids a love letter. Oh, when did something um, red home about come out? It come out twenty nineteen ninety nine. Wow, it was ninety nine. Yes, uh, four minute miles ninety seven. Oh my! Something red home was ninety nine. Pop matters five stars. Uh, Drowned in sound five stars. Like basically across yeah, the that board. Makes sense. So eighth, eighth, ninth grade, we heard this. Yeah. So, and I think this is a classic example of him just one not liking the style of music, one having personal problems with the style of music in general and the people. I don't know if he was like a failed musician, but there's a lot of like really like, like shitty shit. Honestly, like so so he also takes a pot shot at the school system for you two over here. In the second paragraph of this review, he's talking about pop music and how pop music is blah blah blah. It's drivel and it's so derivative and this. You're like, no kidding, it's pop music, man. First of all, he calls this band a pop band. So, and then here's the entire quote. It's pretty crazy. Uh, when did pop become the attention deficit disorder of rock music? These days, parents and teachers quickly diagnose students with ADD when 90% of the time they're simply lazy, drug hazed, or stupid. <laughs> Similarly, being pop has granted bands the luxury of not trying. No, this is not. You're, and, reading, a, you're reading a Nancy Reagan, don't do drugs. I'm literally right reading Seriously. Brent DiCrescenzo's review. This is the second is paragraph. A society merely throws record deals and Ritalin at the problem. <laughs> and then, so, okay, so record deals and Ritalin are the problem, and that's the problem to get up kids. And then, Two paragraphs later, this dum-dum goes on to chastise the Get Up Kids for widely publicizing after Four Minute Mile comes out and these, this music has become popular. Get Up Kids famously was offered, uh, you know, the dump truck full of cash to sign to a major label. And they stayed with Vagrant Records, famously, uh, if you're into that sort of music, famously, if not, who cares? Um, and they made a big deal about it. But I mean, like, we chose to stay with our, our, uh, our indie label. We're not going major. And then makes fun of them for that. The band's decision not to sign with a major label just makes them financially inept in addition what? to their moral shortcoming, musical shortcoming. So first of all, he's saying record deals are being thrown as part of the solution for this crap music and then simultaneously chastises them for not signing the major record deal. He also, this is a man who also doesn't understand emo music in, in the, the underground music scene. So he also makes fun of them. So Jeff, you, you'll know this, uh, Justin and Jesse, you probably know this too. You buy a local band from a small music labels record. One of the first things that comes out is a pamphlet, an insert with their entire catalog of like merch and CDs available. 
Um, and he's like, one of the things he makes fun of is that like the first thing he does and opens a record is you get the Vagant Records catalog thing to come out. And I'm like, dude, that's part of the thing. Like, this is a fundamental yeah, misunderstanding. Everyone, we're going to talk about Blue Note and Impulse. Like, dude, literally. that's what I'm saying. Like, it's a fundamental misunderstanding <laughs> of this entire genre. Uh, and then, uh, like, uh, he called, uh, focused on meaningless lyrics, masquerading his poetic insight. Uh, and then here's, here's one, uh, recently he, the singer sings like the, he was recently received his degree from the bratty school of Caucasian nostril singing. And then the year after that, he rates Morrissey's record album of the year with an 8.9. Talk yeah. about derivative, shitty, bratty white guy pop music and Morrissey, and sure. then the other record that you use, Franz Ferdinand. So, like, all of these things are cool, best new music in his book, and then, like, yeah. this record is... I, just, I, think I don't understand. The point, yeah, they... they this is again John Dark, the Saves the Day. This is two thousand and one, two thousand. Yeah. Like they want to put a stake in the ground. Like suburban I, kids yeah. listening to like emo pop music don't get it, uh, and they're not cool because like, we're like, we're in Chicago like, and we're listening kidding? to this like, and the other fuck, thing. Like this whole review, just like he doesn't. I don't even. I would be surprised if he's like, yeah, I didn't even listen to the record. Like I just said, it was shit. Like. <laughs> It's just totally oh. off. That two point zero is ridiculous. That's pretty low. Yeah. And then he gives Braden Canvases, Jeff. Uh, uh, frame and Canvas. Me. No, excuse me. The one after Frame and Canvas, movie music, Volume One and Two. Oh yeah, One called? and Two. Yeah, yeah. Is that music after? for movies. Yeah. I'm, yeah. He gives that a four point three. Yeah. So like oh, clearly, I should have done that one. Clearly, Brent is just being handed these records that he doesn't care about and like putting like he contradicts himself and I don't understand. Yeah, I just, the article. I think, can you can you hyperlink the article or not or drop it in the chat? Not hyperlink. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds amazing. <laughs> it's, Justin agrees with it all. I, I'm not like, saying that I agree. Is this, with is this in the is this in the dark webs of Pitchfork or is this no? Is, it's is this it's up available. There. It it's is up there. Oh yeah, you're right. It is up there. Wow. He like it's interesting. I, I wonder why the saves the day. Like try if you try to Google the saves the day one, it's not in there. Hmm. Uh, I wonder why. I don't that, under, that, this like one came up before thing. that. I thought maybe you couldn't find it because it wasn't. Yeah. Like, not to mention, like, find whatever you say, but like, you're going to take down like teachers and being like, if kids these days don't have ADD, they're just drug hazed and yeah, lazy. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty dumb. Like, what a shit, what a, what a, what a fucking lazy drug haze metaphor to make in the beginning of a fucking record, Brent G. Crescenzo. Come on this podcast so I can tell you you're an asshole. You old yeah, he, fuck. And I, I do, I do feel like, in contrast to John Dark, and I'm not sure about the ones that, that Jesse referenced. Um, I know Jesse, you said there's a bunch of different mm-hmm. reviewers. I think Brent is still uh, still pumping out reviews for Pitchfork. He is. He's still pumping out bullshit. Yeah. What's some of the stuff that he's into now? Who cares? No, I'm curious. I'm actually. Yeah, <laughs> no, I actually like, didn't even look. No, it he's is. Got, I forgot. I'll look. His, I'll look. You can. You can. If you look up any of his reviews, hold on. I got. I can. Yeah, let's try oh, to he see. Re- no, he hasn't reviewed anything since oh, okay. 2004. Oh, okay. oh, 2004, gotcha. really? Okay, yeah, gotcha. he did. Oh, okay. uh, let's 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 see. Okay, yeah, because 2004 is when he gave that. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's see what he gave Tortoise. It's all around you. Ooh, a five. Really? See, that's what I'm saying. Brent don't know shit. Wow. <laughs> Great record. Yeah, and I do feel like, again, we're circling. I mean, maybe back. not a ten, but I'm just saying, like, a, like a no, no. But I think I, we're like circling. Like they're trying an to, iconic, I, I, yeah, record of the time. I think even more so than with the Adrian Young, again, we said this earlier, they were, I don't see as many three, four or fives now. 
Yeah, just don't. I think they were trying to make a statement in, in right. 99. So you have to work in 99, context. 2000. They're trying to put a stake in the ground that like we are this hipster thing and that like what we if we don't like it, we're going to bash on it hard and that's going to be our identity. Yeah, Whereas but Get Kids it, wasn't like cool kids music. It was no, like lame-o, no. dweeb. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was teenager. It was For like the drug haze, lazy, and simpletons. You know? well, play, us, play us a track then while we're looking at some of his other reviews. All right, um, so I chose the... I mean, also crazy iconic songs. I had a hard time choosing a song. Holiday is the most, I'd say probably the most famous. But I'm going to play, I think, what is maybe the best track or my favorite track, uh, 10 Minutes. Oh, great track. Famously found in Mm. the the emo game of the time. Oh, yeah. If anybody, I I think the emo game is still up. And uh, Bones, don't you have this on Wax too? Yeah. Okay, the Get Up Kids, 10 Minutes, something to write home about, 1999. A fantastic album. They, um, they just had a live stream this year, actually, of that album in its entirety on Valentine's Day. Oh, really? The week oh, I did hear about that. Yeah, Brooklyn Vegan was talking about that. Jelly and I bought it, and it was fabulous. Yeah. And I think also what's interesting is um, on Sundays, Pitchfork does this album review of an album that they didn't review, that they missed, that they slept on for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and this past Sunday, they did Joyce Manor. Joyce Manor was mm. a Southern California pop punk band that came out in the late 2000s, 2010, 11, when the next wave of emo hit. And that next wave of emo was very much influenced by people like the Get Up Kids and others. And they gave Joyce Manor an 8.5, right? And now, again, that was written by Ian Cohen. And Ian Cohen is the emo guy now at Pitchfork. But again, you can't talk about bands like Joyce Manor, The Hotelier, and Foxing, and all those bands without talking about the Get Up Kids. So the fact that they give the Get Up Saves the Day, yeah, right, sure. So the fact that they give the Get Up Kids and Saves the Day two and two point nine, and then now are giving the bands that they're influenced, uh, you know, uh, eights and sevens, doesn't make sense, right? That would be like, you know, giving the Velvet Underground a two and then talking about every band after it. <laughs> Like giving them seven, eights, and nines, which is just ridiculous. Um, Ian Cohen gave uh, Doctor Dog's Fate a five-five. Oh, see, I know, yeah. which is interesting because he's, and that's that's. I think back to our point. Ian Cohen is clearly a guy that's not listening to rootsy indie rock yeah. that has a nod to Neil Young. He's listening to Joyce Manor. Yeah, um, yeah. I can't get your together, Justin. Pitchfork. Justin, I can't hear you. Oh, he gone. He, he, two emo songs and Justin quits the podcast. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Get me out of here. Jesus, criminy sakes. You don't you didn't like that track at all? No. This is I said I was gonna say I thought that had like a that had like a little a little bit of the cloud nothings ish to it. Where I mm-hmm. do agree with your boys review, Rob. It's the it's the nasally singing that yeah. it, it's it, it isn't that I don't like nasally singing to some extent, because you could argue Dylan is nasally but like is that with the poppy? I don't know. Yeah. I also think, again, me, me Jesse, and, and Rob have the nostalgic aspect of it. Like, yeah. I, I can, I, do I listen to that often? I don't, to be fully honest. Like, when it, I'll put it on every once in a while and, like, love it. Um, but I definitely listen to it every day when I was 
15, 14, yeah. 15. And so like the, it, that element plays in and you can, you can never deny that. When See, it comes I to think that. that's a, a legitimately great record that like, yeah, I don't listen to like once a week, but like it's right. in the rotation, I would say. Yeah. Every once in a while. I, I'd have to give it a try. I'd have to give it a try. We're going to let's before you start listening to just random stuff, let, let us at one time, let us put together me, me, Rob and Jesse got to like sit down and put together like an emo. Yeah. Put it, but do it. We'll put, put it, it, we'll put it to the test, baby. Uh, we'll a conversion playlist. playlist. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. A conversion playlist. Cause I don't need, I don't want you going wild on you. I don't want you going rogue, emo yeah. rogue over there. You know, you'll find some crazy stuff. Yeah. Don't, don't get it. Yeah. You, you'd be like putting some Hawthorne Heights on or something. Um, all right, fellas, there we go. We, uh, we did a number on pitchfork tonight. Eat Come it, on, pitchfork. pitchfork. What do you think? You have one million followers. We have ninety-eight. Pitch pork, pitch pork, <laughs> lounge fork, pitch groove. I don't know. Um, but no, that was cool. I, I think we should talk more about music criticism. It's an interesting topic. Cool. All right, round two is our genre round. That is me. So it was my choice to be up. So let me give a little bit of context. I went with partly because. Off air in our chat, we've been talking about verses was just out. We all watched the ghost face and um, Raekwon. Justin was deep into the eyes. Who was it? Isley Brothers and um, Earth, Wind and Fire with Steve Harvey. I only made it halfway through. Steve Harvey yeah. was too much. Too much. I had to turn it off. <laughs> but as so I wanted to, I wanted us to do our own genre style exploration uh, focused on jazz and particularly two labels. So we're doing something a little bit different this week. We're going to focus in on labels, which we've done before, but we're going to focus on two labels. And then I asked the fellas to make a call on which label they prefer when thinking about jazz in the mid 20th century. Um, so I'll talk briefly. And again, please add anything else. So the two labels that I went with, and not that there aren't countless other jazz labels, we've referenced many of them before in the mid uh, 20th century. But I think it's a safe argument to say that Blue Note Records and impulse are two of the biggest that even if you're not a jazz fan or a huge jazz fan you know something about you've seen it you've heard some of the names of the artists that are both on blue note and impulse so for our listeners who aren't as familiar blue note is the older of the two labels it is founded in 1939 by alfred lyon and francis wolf really into some of that bop and hard bop um I would say it's most famous for the albums they put out in the 50s and 60s. A super cool label that stylistically had a sound. Um, they went with one recording engineer, which was Rudy Van Gelder. Rudy Van Gelder has a recording studio in Englewood, New Jersey. Um, and he captured that live sound that became synonymous with Blue Note, Rudy Van Gelder, and then with Francis Wolf and Alfred Lyon. Francis Wolf was also a photographer. And so the photography that was used on pretty much all of the Blue Note records is by Francis Wolf. And the graphic designer they used was Reed Miles. And so if you look at the back of the liner notes, you're always going to see photography by Francis Wolf uh, and designed by Reed Miles. So it had not only a sound, but a look and an aesthetic. I won't name some of the artists that were on it, just in case some of the boys are going to feature them tonight. But Blue Note Records is a phenomenal, historical, legendary label. 
in the mid 60s or 70s they get bought by liberty records um so some of the stuff gets reproduced but blue note is still going strong today there's a great documentary out there called beyond the notes um, that features some contemporary jazz artists like marcus strickland robert glasper puts out black radio so blue note legendary but also contemporary and then you have impulse impulse starts in 1960 so the, the Blue Note's been kicking around for a while. But in 1960, you have Creed Taylor, who starts Impulse Records. Similar idea with an aesthetic. Most of the Impulse Records have a beautiful spine, right? If you see it in people's uh, record collection, you can right away tell the orange and black spine. There it is, Daddy J. Max holding them up. They had a nice glossy cover too, right? Um, all of theirs had a glossy cover. Some of the pictures were similar um, to, to Blue Note with the artist focused heavily on the front. They called themselves the new wave of jazz. Um, so it was definitely like a clearly kind of taking from the Blue Note um, idea and aesthetic and pushing it further. So they're bigger in probably the 60s and 70s. So I'd argue that Blue Note is big in the 50s and 60s and then contemporarily now. And then Impulse crosses over in the 60s with them, but they also kept it going bigger in the 70s. And although this may come up, I have to reference John Coltrane when it comes to Impulse, because arguably he is the artist that got impulse going there's a great book and documentary called the house that train built uh ashley kane is the uh, author of that book i would highly recommend you read that book it highlights um his love supreme which breaks the format of the spine uh, but i think john coltrane can uh, can get away with that um and then of course there's again his, alice coltrane in the 70s and i'll stay away from some of that in case folks pick it up but we are doing a label battle, a jazz label titan battle tonight of Blue Note versus Impulse. Is there anything else anyone wants to add in terms of Blue Note and um, Impulse from a contextual standpoint that I may have missed or that our listeners would appreciate? Well, I think a, another big thing with the Impulse records, the, the, the design was like most of theirs are gatefolds where yes. Blue Note was not a gatefold. And so that added a little to the aesthetic Yes. Um, of the LP. Yeah. And I, um, yeah, I think Blue Note had the classic on the back of the Blue Note is, is your mm -hmm. liner notes that are traditional. And there's not that. Uh, it's kind of a clean aesthetic in the, in the impulse until you open up the gatefold. Yeah. Yeah. I think I mentioned Creed Taylor. Impulse also um, changes hands more than Blue Note did. Mm -hmm. uh, there's different eras. There's the Creed Taylor era, the Bob Feel era, the Ed, uh, Ed Michelle, Ed, Ed Mickle. Um, era that's in the 70s uh, that also kind of shaped that sound and then some of those folks go off and do we've referenced we referenced kudu before and mm -hmm. i think creed taylor breaks off and gets more kind of like the funkier stuff while impulse goes more like avant-garde in the 70s um and i'd say blue note stays pretty consistent with some of the bop and hard bop they get a little experimental in the 60s with people like andrew hill um and cecil taylor uh, but they stay pretty close and clean to that bop and post-bop and hard, hard bop. So I'm going to kick us off. And uh, I had a tough time with this because I think mm. I also Renfield like John Coltrane. I love some of the 70s. Um, I love some of the 70s impulse stuff incredibly, but I'm going with Blue Note. I'm going, mm. I'm sticking with Blue Note. I think Blue Note's catalog from both 39 to 1970 uh, is remarkable 
from big names. Uh, John Coltrane is, he, he puts out Soul Train. He's a, a Blue Train, excuse me. He is referencing Blue Note. You have all the guys from Miles Davis, um, who I'm going to reference here from Wayne Shorter to, to uh, Lee Morgan, the whole crew of Miles Davis's famous second quintet puts out stuff on Blue Note. You then have some of the titans of saxophone like Hank Mobley and Dexter Gordon. The, the lineup is incredible. So I am sticking with Blue Note. I think when it comes to a head-to-head match, uh, although you know they may go 10 rounds, Impulse and Blue Note back and forth, but in my mind, Blue Note is going to take the final win. So with that being said, I am going with um, one of my favorite albums off of Blue Note. And one of my favorite trumpeters, which is Lee Morgan. And it's not Lee Morgan's classic. Everyone knows the Sidewinder, which got arguably some of the most commercial success for Blue Note. His album, Search for the New Land, is so, so good and cool. And again, look at the look who's on it. Look who's on it. Lee Morgan. Of course, Wayne Shorter, Grant Green, Herbie Hancock, Man. Reginald Workman on bass, and Billy Higgins on drums. That is the lineup. Grant Green is arguably my favorite jazz guitar player of all time. His soulful blues style is incredible. He's up there with me with Kenny Burrell, who also puts out uh, Midnight Blue, which I could have featured. And then Wayne Shorter needs no introduction. I could have put up Infinite Eyes or any of the countless albums that Wayne Shorter does for Blue Note. But I'm going with Lee Morgan because it allows me to highlight all these fellas here. Um, so I'm going to share the first track. It is 15 minutes and 45 seconds long, so we're not going to listen to the whole thing. Uh, the song is the title track, which is Search for the New Land. We'll listen to about five minutes or so. And an awesome vibe. I think this sets Lee Morgan apart. You're going to hear some of that bop in there, but it's a little more experimental. So I think this is mid-1960s that this comes out. Super cool. The guitar line in here is not a traditional guitar line, so Rob will be happy. Um, it's kind of more, uh, it kind of sets kind of some texture. So we're going to listen to Search for the New Land for Lee Morgan, featuring Wayne Shorter, Grant Green, Herbie Hancock, Reginald Workman, and Billy Higgins for just a few minutes. So strap on your saddles, boys, and uh, let's get it. after Wayne Shorter blasting away so cool right just and I love I love like the peaks and the valleys and the return to the you know the chorus if you will of that like you know beautiful part with the guitar and then they break up to you know the bass gets a reference and the dueling uh, the dueling trumpet and saxophone and then Wayne comes in and, and you're right on the right side pan to the right by our boy Rudy uh, with just the saxophone and that goes on for another 10 minutes or so of just gorgeous playing by all those fellas there on Lee Morgan's search for the new land so um yeah thoughts on on that anything else we want to add I think should mention two more things I called, um, oh, what's the name of the documentary? I called him Morgan. It's on Netflix right now. That's good. Watch it. So good. Tragic story for Lee Morgan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he dies at 33. He's shot uh, at 33. 
um, a remarkable story uh, and, and just the contextual piece of Blue Note and, and that scene. Um, and it is, April is also uh, Jazz Appreciation Month. So listen to more jazz every month, particularly in April. Um, cool. Any other thoughts, uh, Lee Morgan? Anything you want to add to any of those pieces, that album or anything else by any of those guys? Yeah, I mean, I have some of his other catalog, but that album Ugh. just kind of takes it. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, I have a, I I make it a point if I see something out there whether it's whether it's a Liberty repress or not, like I'm getting the Lee Morgan stuff, um whether it's the original 60s stuff or it's the repressings in the 70s or 80s. So, yeah, cool. Um all right, so that's a uh, one point for Blue Note. Uh put it in the column for uh put it in oh, the boy. column for Francis Francis and Al. Uh, I'm getting March Madness flashbacks. <laughs> there we go. I know. <laughs> I missed that vibe a little bit. But uh cool. All right. Um who wants to go next? Uh, I'll go if no one, no one else. Go ahead, Robert. Much like Jeff, I had like a real tough time with this one. Like, I don't even know if I was decided up until like, I don't know if I'm decided right now, to be completely honest. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, it's tough. Because there's so much to think about when you think about both of these labels. And Jeff, I'm trying to think of something interesting to note that you haven't already noted. But like, when you think about both of these labels, like they have so many, I was like, immediately upon thinking about it i was like oh impulse like they have mingus 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 like one of my favorite jazz records of all time yeah and then you know they've released like the first thelonious records the first archie shep records john coltrane art blakey and then you know yeah yes uh, yeah alice coltrane so all this stuff so it's like and then like i'm like oh let me dive in a blue note and i'm like they got blue train they have art blakey's moaning like eric dolphy's Eric yeah. Dolphy's Out to Lunch, one of like the first avant-garde records in the yep. mid '60s. You know, Thelonious Monk, Paris, 1969, like such a paramount Crazy. record. Like, and then they have like the Monk's Quartet with John Coltrane, that live record, the first Herbie mm-hmm. Hancock records. Like, they even like Miles Davis doesn't really enter into this conversation particularly because most of his stuff was like Columbia, Columbia yeah. and, but he released a record on on Blue Note in this the right. middle of the '60s, just out of nowhere. So it's like. <laughs> And all of his boys are on it. Like, all of his yeah. boys are Blue Note. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. yeah, and then, like, you have, like, Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter, like, all of these people that came out of the Miles Davis quintets, like, like, like John Schofield, Joe Levine, like, the, the, the list of, like, things that yeah. come out of the Miles Davis universe. And then I was like, okay, and, like, that's, like, a tie. Do I go <laughs> to, like, newer artists? Yes. And then you have, like, Robert Glasper, Christian Scott, and right. the Blue Notes lineup is deep. But impulse which is now was mostly a catalog label up until recently yeah is putting out chewbacca hutchins and sons Pino, of Pino and blake Pino yeah and the blake. Pino and blake record so like mm-hmm. is their catalog as deep with the new stuff no but it's strong so it's yes. like <laughs> they, like do i knock them for that and i was like shit i don't know what to do and then, so i think what i came down to is then i was like okay like what are some other like like ancillary smaller factors to make like even some sort of decision. And then I started thinking about like influence in art and uh, I had to go Bluno. Yeah. It's like, I feel like Bluno when you think of like, like you can talk to someone that doesn't know anything about jazz, but like they would recognize the name Blue Note Records. And the Blue Note Records album style uh, proliferated by Reed Miles, obviously Impulse equally is influential, but like, the blue note jazz like record the, the the that aesthetic yeah is replicated and like you know it's like you can find replications of that like urban outfitters on t-shirts and stuff like that where it's like i think it's 
cultural influence for better or for worse. You know, you have them selling off their name to every club in the entire world that wants to put Blue mm-hmm. Note Jazz Club on their thing. Right, right, right. Um, which is a debatable topic. But I was like, in, in terms of like, especially if we're talking about like Jazz Appreciation Month, like I think Blue Note, not that it's done more, but like is ubiquitous when you talk about jazz. Yeah. I feel like. And it's a really, I'm like literally like splitting hairs when making yeah. this decision. No, I was like, I, I'm and I was like, what, is there anything I can point to that would like lean the scale one way or the other? Yeah. And like, ultimately I think after literally like going back and forth while I'm listening to your song, be like, cause I had my impulse argument all lined up too. Cause I can make that one. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. No, so it's, it's like, it's I was like, preference. Uh, I mean, going back like, to our previous segment, it is, it is like, you just got to make a call. Right. And yeah, I love like doing when that my, Like when my mind goes blank, like what yeah. I think. Impulse of Blue Note. And I was like, I, I got to go Blue Note. Who'd you so choose? The song I picked is um, one of my favorite records from Blue Note and maybe one of like, you know, considered widely one of the best Blue Note records uh, and one that has like a very personal connection to me. I had to go Wayne Shorter, Speak No Evil. Oh yeah, such a good one. Great record. And, and too, like it also encompassed that sort of like cover vibe that I'm talking about. Does it have the lips? Like, has the kissy lips on the front? Has the kissy lips yeah. on the top. It's got the white cream bar yeah, and then beautiful. it's got the sort of like blue toned, um, you know, like photo yeah, it's great. Uh, right up front, which is like, it's not the typical blue note aesthetic but i think that's like that's when i think blue note aesthetic i oh, think yeah. that sort of milieu yes yeah um fun fact about reed miles not really a jazz fan really yeah he worked for esquire magazine uh and was an art director and they were like hey he like knew somebody that knew somebody so i guess a lot of the way these like first issue vinyls got out into the world initially yeah. was reed miles would get them and be like hey do you want this and, like give it to friends oh wow okay <laughs> so that's he was cool. just getting all these copies of these yeah, famous this, records yeah. he designed and I was like really need them um and then so i think infinize is probably my favorite track off of this record but uh a little late in the evening so i wanted to like pick up the juice a little bit so i picked i picked speak no evil because it's got a little bit more of a a little bit more of a bop to it um crazy about this record too um which i guess maybe i realized or forgot or didn't know is that like he's writes this record while he's still in miles davis's band Oh, like he yeah. writes this in 66 he's still oh yeah that's miles the height davis. of all that nefertiti like that whole stuff yeah that they're putting out of miles davis is and that. the band on this record is insane yeah, who's in this one freddie hubbard herbie hancock ron carter on bass alvin jones elvin jones on drums like um, i don't think you make a better band besides like the miles davis great quintet yeah that's a good band on oh, alvin jones i mean and alvin, alvin jones, jones is he's a he's a culture and guy yeah yeah, yeah. like i like they like what it's like an all-star band. Yeah, it is all-star band. All right. I, and um, like- I have to say, um, for our listeners, Rob, can you tell me again? Oh, geez, I, I forget. What instrument does Wayne play? Saxophone. Oh. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Boom. He does play saxophone, but it's like nice 60s jazz. I'm, I'm talking yeah, about like I know, fucking I know, I know he plays saxophone. Um, anyways. <laughs> Uh, sorry, I think we just sealed an argument that we've been having. No, I'm just messing with you. Go ahead, play your Wayne Shorter song, and you love guitar, uh, jazz saxophone, so play it. I never said I didn't like jazz saxophone. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, I think, think you're on record saying you don't. Yeah, like we jazz. have we have the tapes. I've clarified it in a number of number of ways. <laughs> I, I don't like you're, jazz. You're, you saxo- are, I don't are, like many yes. jazz saxophonists. You're, you're clarifying it right now. People like Wayne Shorter 
tip the scale over for you. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, Earlier, wait. I, I mean, you can't, you can't. No, it's talk. not on this record though. Jazz guitar, because that shit sucks. No, it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> I should have played Grant Green, just one of his albums. Uh, Green Street or any of those are awesome. I would agree with you there. I, I'm really thinking about more modern interpretations know, of jazz. I know, I know, I know. All right, all right, shut up. Here we go. Uh, much like Jeff's track, this one's quite long, so we'll bop in for a little bit and then uh, bop out. Let's do it. Stop it there. That solo goes on for yep. quite some time. Um, yeah, awesome. Wayne Shorter, uh, Speak No Evil, the title track off of that album. Slaps, does great. I think also if jazz drumming to me is so cool, like when they like dropping the bombs in there, like to me, like that, that get jazz drumming gets me all the time. And Elvin Jones is a beast on the drums. Um, yeah, incredible. Just incredible. That's a great track. All of Wayne Shorter's stuff is is remarkable. Adam's Apple and all those albums. So um, good choice. All right, strike it up. Two for Blue Note. Um, yeah, and I agree, Rob. Couldn't, like, I, I could sit here and I could make the same argument for Impulse of how uh, all the things we said, you just changed Blue Note, put Impulse in there. But Literally, I was walking up here to set up my laptop and I was like, yeah. I think I'm going to go Impulse. Gotta and I was it. like, ah, fuck it. Got to make a call. Uh, Bonius or J-Mac, what you got for the... Uh, Versus, I'll I'll go because I had my I had my decision made when you sent the text, so I there was no like going Ooh, back and forth. I'm not going to tell you what that decision was just yet. I know no. what it is. I you think might. I have an. Inc- I think I know what it is too. Hold on, wait a second. Wait a second. You start 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 talking. I'm gonna I'm gonna write out something. It's it's been typed. Okay. <laughs> wait. Then, so, it's typed. You can, can see my can phone. T- I'm not typing part- anything. Can I participate as well? Yeah, I think I know. So I'm so I had two albums though. So I had it picked, and I was like, let me really think about what I'm what I'm gonna do. So I went in back into both catalogs, Blue Note and Impulse, and I came down to two records. And these are the first weren't the first two records I bought, but they were the first two jazz albums that I purchased CD otherwise. So I bought it at oh. um at a T-Bones record store, shout out T-Bones, in um, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Um, in college, they used to have this bin, this is before vinyl was, you know, had blown up again like it is now, but they had a bin of used CDs. You ever remember looking for used oh, yeah. CDs? Mm. They had the machine that cleaned the CDs when people turned them in. So they had a bin that was $5 for any CDs. And so I think it was like within a week's time, I picked up both of these albums. Um, and one album was, um, and these are the two albums that got me into jazz, was uh, Herbie Hancock's Maiden Voyage, which is on Blue Note. It's an amazing album. Um, this was like one of the first jazz albums that I ever listened to. It featured a lot of the people we've talked about today, Freddie Hubbard, Ron Carter, George Coleman, Anthony yeah. Williams. Um, it's still probably my favorite Herbie Hancock of, of that album. era. It is a great um, album, yeah. And then probably a week later, 
I bought also a, a Love Supreme on Impulse. Um, yeah. And so I was thinking about both of those and I was, I was having a hard decision, even though I think at my gut, I always knew what I was going to go with. So then I was going through all the things that we've talked about, like aesthetics. What does the vinyl packaging look like? What do I like more? Um, and, and yeah, you probably guessed it, but I'm going impulse, baby. I'm not, I'm not going blue note. I'm going impulse. <laughs> yeah. Impulse. Yeah. I know. Impulse. I knew it. Well, I could tell That's by fine. your face every time we, yeah. we said it blew up, but yeah. then I just knew you. Yeah, it, knew hurt you well. it hurt my heart whenever you... No. Oh, <laughs> well, also, as soon as you held up a Love Supreme, I was like, all right, oh, cool. Yeah. Whatever record you put up against this. Like. I know. Yeah. yeah. So, but but I think, honestly, I, I went and I was like, went through all of my collection and, and I hands down own more Impulse than I do Blue hmm. Note stuff. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Hmm. And now I think there's a good mix of like Columbia in there for Miles Davis stuff that I... Because I have yeah. a lot of his stuff and things like that but um i I, rob you touched on it i think also like some of my favorite jazz artists right now are also on impulse um there's there's some jazz artists on blue note but ones that i don't i listen to on a daily and i'm waiting Mm -hmm. for their album to come out or on impulse they're not on blue note and so i think that's part of my why i like impulse more is that i while you did name some avant-garde stuff with Blue Note, they do stay pretty traditional yeah. and mm-hmm. kind of like stay in that vein. In a lot of ways, related to the Jeff, you'll probably remember the book, um, not the Impulse book, but the other one about like modern jazz. Playing and, changes. Yeah. And so this idea of, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like um, the corporatizing of a of a label with um, Blue Note and kind of the selling of the name and and things like you you had mentioned. Yeah, Rob, yeah. I think I think. And so then I was thinking about like, well, what about like modern jazz that I like? And so I just don't think without Impulse and people like Pharaoh Sanders and. Oh, yeah um alice coltrane and um that you would have like kamasi washington and and, and folks mm-hmm. like that i think mm-hmm. they definitely paved the way for who i listen to modern jazz now um so i um yeah and and, and i love that they've stuck with you yeah. know although the labels have changed if but you know it's still the traditional, still the traditional orange and, and so i think that's cool um even yeah it's beautiful so i think i think it's cool how they've evolved you know they got all this crazy this is um the common is coming which is um which have like a new album coming out um, they do. so, do, so does sons of Comet too yeah yeah um so I'm, i was really stoked on there's a tons of different albums i could play i mean this is one of my favorite albums oh my this god album. the opening of that album is the oh, best the drumming and the bass oh with oh god so there were actually three songs that i was going to to choose from the first one is the opening song on this album which is alex for our listeners it's alice Coltrane's journey to satchitanada yeah this is an amazing album pharaoh sanders uh, oh, yeah uh. Jewels of Thought and listen to the opening song, Hum Allah, Hum Allah, Hum Allah. It's 10 min- 15 minutes, but it's like some spoken word stuff as well. Yeah. Um, and it, just love that all these, they're just like the first track is a banger on all of these, but in the end, I ha- I'm, I'm going to love Supreme. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't going to do it, but then I just put on a, a mix today in the first song and I'm going to play um, Acknowledgements part, part one. Um, yeah. and I think- Change the game. 1960 yeah. 1960 it's so yeah so crazy i that's like so early 
changed the game. It came out in 65. Was it 65? I thought it was yeah. 60. Oh, Recording okay. 64, my... came out in 65. Okay. Um, oh, Impulse starts in 60. That's my mistake. Yeah. yeah. But uh, McCoy Tyner, Jim Gar- Jimmy Garrison, Elvin Jones. Um, and it was recorded all in one session, um, which I did not know that until I went back and yeah. looked at it, which is pretty wild given – and I like – this kind of gets at what some of Impulse will do later on. I think this album, in a lot of ways, is kind of a foreshadowing of what will come with that with that label. So, oh, one great Blue Note album I forgot: McCoy Tyner's "Real McCoy." Oh, the Real McCoy—that's a great one too. But with he, the he does a, of like the bop, bop jazz. Like his know. Impulse stuff is great too. The song of yeah. ballad and blues is beautiful. Um, I got to see him live. Um, Rob, what's the big jazz venue in Cambridge? Scholar, uh, uh, Scholars? No, it's not Scholars. It's another it's one. The Regatta Bar. Yeah, at the regard when he was like seventy something, is yes, at the Charles Hotel. Yeah, he he was he did yeah it was it was remarkable. It was cool. I saw them in the Bad Plus there. Um, All right, yeah, let's do it, John. And again, while I think I posted this on the gram, uh, John Coltrane lived in Philadelphia for quite Mm -hmm. a bit, uh, and his house was adjacent to a house that they were going to demolish. There's a lot of concerns about his house being demolished and uh, making sure that it's part of the historical. Uh, commission and it did it got approved so uh, good work by people like ours ours nova which is an awesome avant-garde jazz uh, collective in philly brewery town beats was a big part of it i believe with this um so yeah the john coltrane house in in philly all right here's um part one acknowledgement from a love supreme Yes, a love supreme acknowledgement part one, John Coltrane, legend. I mean, change the game, change the game. Um, beautiful Drums on that track, or just oh man, incredible. everything on that track. Yeah, yeah everything on that track. Yeah, I agree. That's Alvin mm-hmm. Jones. That's a Quint. That's the yeah. that's the that's McCoy, and that's the whole crew, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the crew. Um, it's yeah, um, yeah. Good. Go ahead. No, no, no. I I, I was just gonna add. I, I think one of the things I wanted to that resonated with me. I think what you said in your preamble, if I had put the parameter, which I didn't, but you did, that I appreciate was like the jazz that I listen to now, where is the, where could I draw the direct line to? Mine would be closer to impulse like yours. Mm-hmm. Not that there's not some incredible stuff off blue note that of is course. still, you know, that sound that like guys would be like, Oh yeah, that sounds like Donald bird or again, Hank Mobley and things like that. I mm-hmm. think the stuff that I resonate more with would probably be like, if you had to categorize, it would fall in the, the thank you to impulse um, rather than thank you to blue note more. So, and of course the lines are blurred um, at this point, but yeah. yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about um, some of that stuff like Donald bird, blackbird and stuff like that. I didn't, oh, dude, it all comes out on blue note, right? And the, I, Listen I to it that it comes out on blue note you know i was gonna reference i almost played his album and it's right 1964 which i just looked it up i thought it was later a new perspective has Mm -hmm. that same kind of style that john coltrane have but i would say listen to donald bird a new perspective tomorrow it's remarkable like it's it's still blue note but it has more of that like it could have come out on impulse um yeah but i think what's cool about that track that we just listened to is well the, the beginning hits you 
similar to so what off of yeah. kind of blue mm. you know just boom and yes. then it, you're like in it and then the how he loses this later on but like how Coltrane would he would be on the brink of oh he, you're like he's about to lose it right he's about to just, just go off into like somewhere else but he brings it back where later yeah. you know he kind of just doesn't give a shit anymore like if you think Sunship I don't know if you've ever listened to it but oh, that's it, a wild it's released post hominously is that how you say it um, posthumously yeah yeah um, but it's 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 wild, it's wild you know, your eye your eyes are bleeding listen and to he it. gets wild he gets <laughs> he he goes out there he gets out to that cosmic you know psychic he gets out there yeah yeah no and i think at the end of the day what i love most about jazz is a lot of things but two things one i love the idea that it's a collective but mm-hmm. typically every individual gets to shine like although it's a John Coltrane record, mm-hmm. throughout the record there's moments where Alvin and McCoy like it, that's that's the way jazz is, is solos right, but it's like then they come back together right. Um, the that, bands are just as important as the leader. Like exactly. in a jazz record, like if you see a jazz record, you have to flip it over and see who the band mm-hmm. is, and, and that's love, why they list the right. band on the front of those records a lot. Like because like knowing who the side players were was was just as important. When I buy a Blue Note, I mean, I you partly have to buy it for like, it, it, I might buy it actually because of who's playing, not necessarily that like, I, Lou Donaldson, cool, but I, oh, Grant Green's on this? I'm definitely getting it because he's my favorite guitar player. I don't know about this Lou Donaldson album, but I know he's on it. Yeah. Um, and I think that, and also I love the idea that it's interchangeable. Although a lot of the guys played with the same guys, it, it wasn't like, oh, this, this is a, this is, X band name it was this is john coltrane with probably alvin jones and mccoy tyner and all them but also he'd add other folks in there and blue Mm -hmm. note was you know was was that as well um so that really i love that idea with jazz is like it's someone centrally who's composing the tunes and but the players are extremely important to creating the overall sound and they get a chance to shine on the record too uh, which i think is and like contribute track you mean like a lot of jazz records will have tunes written by the sidemen played with the band and stuff you know art Mm -hmm. blakey was notorious for that right the jazz messengers literally is wayne wayne shorter is not wayne shorter without being under the tutelage of art blakey and and those guys and getting a chance to to cut his teeth on it so yeah um one other thing about that love supreme record just because i think it's super cool and uh, like i'm a fan of them like love supreme is like kind of a concept record Mm -hmm. like you have that like which is like the love supreme that like carries out throughout the entire record and yeah. that's like, I think that's just so cool. Like in, in 66 to write like a jazz concept record around like yeah. these themes. And it's just super cool. Yeah, definitely. He, fa- he found the point. Lord. He was, he was, he found the Lord. Love Supreme. <laughs> well, that's it. That, that's the thing, you know, that's cool about the, is how he, he's, you know, how the words are sung by the sax, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and then you hear it in the bass and the chorus, yeah. like, like it's, it's like this theme that carries through the entire record that like ties the whole thing together. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, put one in the impulse box. Bonius, close us out, fella. Right. So, um, admittedly, um, I'm not a big jazz guy, just historically speaking, like it wasn't like played in the house, like growing up and stuff. So I didn't have a lot of background of it and um, only came to really appreciate it. Like in more recent years, like back in college, we, we went to some like jazz shows at like Ortlieb's and, and some other jazz clubs like in Philly and whatnot. But otherwise, like, I don't know, it just wasn't in my wheelhouse. Yeah. And so I'm not as familiar with like a lot of the big names as, 
as maybe you guys are and everything and some of those musicians. So I had to do, you know, a bit of research on it. Um, I know some and, and have listened to more like recent jazz artists. So when approaching this, I was kind of, uh, I didn't want to be like a poser and, and try to like, <laughs> No, that's cool. These yeah. old classic artists and stuff. So I was looking at it more like from a legacy standpoint, like what more modern artists do I like that maybe were influenced or or whatnot by some of these particular labels or or even like sampled some of that stuff. So I kind of came at it from that perspective, from a yeah. more modern contemporary aspect. So um, in doing some of that research, um, I I kind of came to um i guess identify more with the blue note um, label um because of some of the samples that um Uh, appeared on like you know uh tribe or dre and stuff like that but then something that uh, kind of piqued my interest and i've been listening to a lot over the past week while researching this was um back in 2003 mad lib Yes, mm-hmm. a record of remixes called Shades of Blue. So good. Um, Classic. So good. So that kind of just drew me over towards the Blue Note side. Yeah. There. Um, Posted on the gram. It's on the gram, folks. Yeah. For, uh, for yeah. our listeners. Um, so, I mean, um, like I said, I, I, I don't know a whole lot of the history of it, but um, but yeah, this, this album in particular was awesome. Oh, great um, choice. So he was he um, samples Ronnie Foster, um, in this track Mystic Bounce from this yes. 2003 album. Oh, this is Shades such a Blue. good. So we'll play yeah. this. Yeah, super cool. Mad Lib, Mystic Bounce off Shades of Blue. Mad Lib in, invades Blue Note. Awesome. Just a cool idea. They were like, yeah, Mad Lib, here's our vault of all the shit that's out there. Go have some fun with it. That was kind of an unprecedented thing, too, because I think Blue Note was kind of reserved for some of that, um, like allowing the sampling. So that's pretty cool. Whole album's great if you uh, haven't oh, had yeah. a chance to listen to the whole thing. Oh, yeah. It's super cool. Yeah, super, super, super cool. Yeah, and that's uh, I love that Blue Note puts that out. I think that was, again, like Blue Note's had kind of a resurgence, like Rob mentioned, but in two thousand and three, which I think that album comes mm-hmm. out, like, yeah. you know that they weren't really on. I think like jazz was kind of in its it's like dormant. Not that obviously there wasn't awesome jazz happening at the time, but I think late nineties, early two thousands, it's 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 a little it's it's not in the the mainstream kind of like world that we're all talking now. It was very much like an underground genre at that point. You know, it yeah. was like you had to be an aficionado in jazz to like jazz in 2003. Right. It didn't have a, you know, you had bands like the Bad Plus that we referenced before, but like there was, there was not a, there was not a Kamasi Washington recentering it and things like that at that point. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Awesome. Um, and I think another thing that's interesting to bring up, we, we talked earlier that Blue Note stayed in the bop, hard bop world. 
but that's not entirely true in the 60s they went more of the kind of soul jazz so that all the mad lib stuff there is he's not sampling the wayne shorter albums and yeah. hank mobley he's I doing sampling 70s stuff yeah. he, but the 60s funkier stuff so mm-hmm. like jimmy smith lou donaldson um even some of the Donald Burr, like the the funkier stuff, the more like the Hammond B three, and when the you know the drumming was less kind of Alvin Jonesy and more funk. Yeah. Um, and did uh, they put out a Van Morrison record at one point too? Who? Blue Note. Oh, I don't know. That would be yeah. The, the internet that. for that. I never heard that, but I, yeah, but no, yeah. So they they get they they kind of get in that soul jazz funk a little bit. That I think Jesse, to your point, then that's where tribe and those guys go like i don't think right. tribe and those and that that style no. of hip-hop is sampling much from impulse like justin you said in the chat but they're also not sampling some of like the hard bop they're they're they are they're getting some of the bass tones from some of it but they're getting some more like the soul jazz stuff which is cool oh, yeah awesome fellas well there we go no thanks for uh thanks for indulging me on that i wanted to do that topic one i think it's kind of cool to do like a shootout um make you all make some decisions uh is it is jazz appreciation month though go back and find some albums listen to them uh arguably one of my favorite genres of the last 10 years uh really is is jazz so uh, a lot of cool stuff that's currently happening in multiple scenes and styles so uh go out there listen to some jazz dive into blue note dive into impulse and listeners let us know are you an impulse guy like daddy j mac or are you a blue note guy the other three or are you both like we all are because they're both incredible. Uh, cool. All right. That's going to close us out the lounge fellas. We did it. Uh, we did it big after the open bar. We uh, kicked it off with our first round of, I'm actually forgetting literally what we talked about an hour ago. What was the first round? First round was up. Pitchfork. Pitchfork. Yes. <laughs> we put pitchfork to shame. Uh, we put them to shame folks. They don't even know what to do. More like shit fork. Yeah, right. <laughs> fork. I think they uh, they closed up shop. They heard this needle and groove lounge was coming for them, and uh, they're no longer a thing because they couldn't handle that embarrassment. And uh, yeah, and then we talked about about jazz. So cool. All right, fellas, let's close this out for this. Uh, skip it and do that. All right. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Needle and Groove Lounge. We hope you enjoyed the show. Forget what the critics say. If you've got an album that means a lot to you, give it a 10 and keep it moving. We hope you enjoyed that first opening theme about music criticism where we took on Pitchfork and shared the songs that they hated but we loved. And then next, we talked about jazz record labels. There's millions of labels. Explore them all. But we talked about Blue Note and Impulse. And then later this week, check out The Last Call. We've got some great tracks, some pounds, some sips, some no sips. And don't forget to check out the previous Last Calls for more new music, discovery, and criticism. Well, thanks again for listening. Give us a follow at Needle Groove Lounge on Instagram to hear more music and music-related content. Thanks.